Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, May 4th, 2019, is an Anne and Andrew Tisch Supreme Court lecture. In this talk, legal experts Lawrence Tribe and Neil Katyal discuss the history and future of the power of impeachment. Well, thank you. It is such a treat to be here with all of you, um, and it's a real privilege to be here with Professor Tribe. I think it's no exaggeration to say Larry Tribe is one of the greatest scholars of our Constitution ever. Um, uh, you've heard about his many Supreme Court arguments. He's written the most famous treatise in constitutional law. He's taught thousands of students, uh, including Barack Obama. Um, and he's written a great book, and we'll talk about this book today, um, but I encourage everyone to take a look at it. And one thing before we start that I just want to say about Larry on a personal note, it's fitting, his co-author is Joshua Matz, who is like nine years old or something. Um, and uh, that is so uh, indicative of who this man is. Um, I was a college debater um, at Dartmouth, and this is in 1989, and I sat, you would I'm sure don't even remember this. Um, I sat across from Larry at a dinner for debaters at the Harvard. Harvard had a tournament. And he spent an hour telling me about constitutional law and how great it is to be a law professor. And honestly, that's why I'm here, because of that. Um, And, you know, we lost touch for 10, 12 years. And after the horrific attacks on September 11th, um, Larry and I decided to, he took me under his arm and we wrote a piece together that became pretty important um, and, uh, in thinking about Guantanamo and, and so on. And so, I mean, it's not just that he's a, a great scholar, but he is the greatest of mentors. Um, and it's a real privilege to say that. So let me start, Larry, just with um, the book. Um, and you know, you know, to end a presidency, everyone's like, Oh, you have such amazing timing. You're talking about impeachment on May 4th. How did you think about that? I'm like, this could have been any week for the last two years, but um, let's let's, uh, tell us a little bit about the book and why you wrote it. Thank you, Neil, and thank you for those very generous comments about me. You're certainly one of the people that that I feel proudest to have some connection with. I mean, Neil is obviously a national treasure. He's wonderful as a litigator. He's terrific, I understand, as a teacher. I've talked to a lot of people that really regard Neil as their mentor. He's wonderful at explaining to the nation what's just happened half an hour before he goes on MSNBC. Uh, (laughs) Neil, as I say, is a national treasure. And I, I, too, want to thank the Historical Society and all of you for for being here. Uh, I can't imagine what would interest you in impeachment or, <laughs> or the or the current situation that that we confront. But hey, uh, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> so let me say a few things about 
not so much about the book. I hope you actually read it. Um, but I'll say some things that led me to write it and some issues that I think are really misunderstood even now about, about impeachment and its role in American history and its role going forward. And I think of them as a series of fallacies that when I started writing the book with the nine-year-old Joshua Matz, he's actually in his 20s, but, but he is one of my best students ever, and I've had some great ones, Barack Obama, John Roberts, Elena Kagan. I would say Neil, except I didn't have the good fortune of being a teacher where Neil was a student. But anyway, um, Joshua was one of the great students, and we decided that it really was important to get people to understand that impeachment is not a silver bullet, that it's a difficult process, that its history makes clear and its design makes clear uh, that it can't suddenly wipe away all of the terrible undercurrents that may lead to a renegade presidency or a tyrannical presidency, that it has to be deployed with great care that you can't talk about impeachment until it goes in one ear and out the other and you can't be guilty of crying wolf. But we wanted to undo a number of myths about impeachment. And one of them that we really didn't think too many people would take seriously, but it turns out that Donald Trump does and that my former colleague Alan Dershowitz does, is the idea that well, impeachment is under the control, ultimately, of the U.S. Supreme Court. Remember when Donald Trump said not long ago, they can't impeach me. If they try, I'll go right to my Supreme Court. <laughs> you know what he had in mind. He was sort of assuming that, that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch would somehow do his bidding. He has obviously so little understanding of, of American institutions, American values, the American Constitution. So one thing that we think we put to rest in the book was the idea that the Supreme Court has any role at all to play. You may remember the Nixon case, and I don't mean Richard Nixon. Uh, there was a case about a judge named Walter Nixon, and he didn't think that the Senate trial that resulted in his removal uh, was really a proper impeachment trial. He challenged it in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, go away. It's not up to us. The whole design rejected the idea of putting the justices, some of whom, after all, might have been appointed by the person who's being impeached and being put on trial. Uh, they might be beholden to the president, and especially if the president is in the dock. You wouldn't want the Supreme Court to have anything to do with judging. There were other reasons, but ultimately... The court has nothing to do with it except sort of ceremonially. The chief justice presides over any trial of a president, but it's the vice president who presides over an impeachment trial in the Senate of, uh, of anybody else. Now, the fact that the courts play no role, although they can play an ancillary role in things like enforcing subpoenas and the like, which might contribute to impeachment proceedings has led a number of people to engage in another fallacy, and that is the idea that impeachment is simply a purely political process. Gerald Ford famously said that impeachment is whatever the House 
of representatives and the Senate say it is. Well, that's really not true. I mean, it at least is not consistent with the Constitution to treat a disagreement of policy as an impeachable offense. However much you may disagree with a particular president's trade policies or with a particular president's desire to undo health care, that's not a basis for impeachment, even though no court would stop a wholly partisan impeachment drive based on nothing that remotely resembles what the framers thought of as a high crime and misdemeanor. The Clinton case certainly showed that. The fact that there was a purely partisan effort to get rid of that president, uh, which predictably failed in the Senate, surely would not have led to any Supreme Court um, intervention. So the lack of a judicial role doesn't mean it's just politics. Now, some people have wondered about the relationship between impeachable offenses and crimes, and we talk about that in the book. Uh, Neil, in one conversation we had, you asked me about murder, I think, Mm -hmm. and that really leads me to remember something that we do write about in the book. You may remember a character named Aaron Burr, uh, who didn't waste his shot. Aaron Burr, the sitting vice president of the United States, shot to death the legendary, already legendary, Alexander Hamilton, then the former Secretary of the Treasury, sort of like Mike Pence deciding to go out and, and you know, and, and kill Larry Summers or, <laughs> or, or, um, or another former Secretary of the Treasury, although Larry, though a friend of mine and the former president of my institution, is no Alexander Hamilton. Not, not quite, anyway. Um, <laughs> So that was kind of murder. That's not what he thinks. <laughs> no, I think, I think Larry gets a bum rap. He, he's not, his ego, though not tiny, is not vast, not vast. Um, so you would think that when a sitting vice president murders somebody, that might lead to at least impeachment talk, if not impeachment. But when we looked at the history, it became clear there was no talk of impeaching Aaron Burr, not at all. He was indicted for murder in New York and in New Jersey, but a lot of senators got those states to back off. The idea of impeaching and removing him for murder just didn't come up. Now, it's not that they forgot about the impeachment clause. It was only 1804. It had been written quite recently. But the idea was that impeachment is all about crimes against the nation. It's all about things that undermine the rule of law, things that undermine democracy, things of the sort that I think we've seen plenty of in the last couple of years. That's what impeachment is about. Now, there was an interesting aftermath by the way, to that, to that uh, story of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Burr was excoriated in the press after he killed Hamilton. He fled to Georgia, even though he was the sitting vice president. But he needed to be called back to preside as the president of the Senate. 
over the impeachment trial of Justice Samuel Chase. Supreme Court justices, you know, can be impeached too. Any officer of the United States can be impeached and removed. That was an interesting trial. It was interesting because, as Justice Rehnquist noted in his book about impeachment, which I also recommend, by the way, um, it's called Grand Inquest of the Nation, I think. He said that some contemporary wag noted that usually in a trial, the murderer is in the dock and the magistrate presides. <laughs> <laughs> But in this trial, unusually, uh, the murderer presided and the judge was in the dock. Quite a spin. And by the way, uh, the Constitution doesn't exactly give a satisfactory answer to what happens if a vice president like Aaron Burr at that time or Mike Pence now were to be impeached by the House and put on trial in the Senate. It's not John Roberts who would preside over the impeachment trial if there were to be one of Mike Pence. It's actually Mike Pence who would preside. (laughs) A little awkward, wouldn't you say? Talk about conflicts of interest. The Constitution says the vice president shall preside because he's the president of the Senate, except when the president is in the dock in an impeachment trial. So as with a lot in the Constitution, to make sense of it, you sometimes have to look at its purposes as well as the words. Clearly, some accommodation would have had to be worked out, uh, worked out in that case. Uh, anyway, crimes and impeachable offenses are not the same thing. Today, I'm sure that if, for example, the president were to go out and shoot someone on Fifth Avenue just to take... <laughs> a random hypothetical. (laughs) If he were to do that, I think impeachment talk would be ginned up to a fever pitch, and maybe even McConnell would say, well, okay, we we might have to hold a trial in that case. (laughs) And, you know, in our... We'll postpone it till after the election. Oh, oh, no doubt, no doubt. Because of this wild idea, I think Neil and I have both written about the idea that according to an Office of Legal Counsel opinion of 1973, repeated in 2000, a sitting president cannot be indicted. And for the life of me, I can't understand why that should be. Why shouldn't he be indictable and then the indictment simply sealed and held in abeyance with the clock stopped on the statute of limitations and with the president not being able to claim that He was denied his right to speedy trial if he is tried after he leaves. In fact, the Mueller report quite clearly doesn't rule out the possibility of changing the DOJ policy at some future date, although it is clear that Robert Mueller, the guy who plays it uh, by the book and who is a professional and institutionalist, even in these extraordinary times, felt bound not to indict sitting president. But I think we'll have a chance in our conversation to talk about what that report really said and meant. Anyway, another thing that that is central to our book is a discussion of why ordinary crimes of the kind that are included in the United States Code 
Most of them are in Title 18 of the U.S. Code. Ordinary crimes like bank fraud, wire fraud, obstruction of justice. Uh, those do not exhaust the set of potential impeachable offenses. And in fact, some crimes plainly aren't impeachable. In Nixon's case, one of his crimes for which there was some push to try to impeach him uh, was tax fraud. And the House Judiciary Committee concluded that although that was a crime, it was not a high offense against the nation. And conversely, there are a lot of things that are not actual crimes in the U.S. Code, like colluding with a hostile foreign power, just to take an example, um, and doing nothing about its invasion of our country and its cyber attack, and in fact having an hour-long conversation with the president of that power in which you say it would have been rude to ask him not to keep doing it. <laughs> that kind of dereliction of duty in my view, and in the view we take in this book, is a manifestly high crime and misdemeanor, an impeachable offense. But it's not a crime. Um, not a crime for which one could actually prosecute somebody. It's not written down in the statute books. It's only conspiracy, not collusion, that's the crime. And in fact, just if I can take a detour, Neil, into the Mueller report, the way it's been misrepresented by Barr clearly shows that he is unfit to be Attorney General of the United States. You know, Bill Barr claimed clearly to the delight of his boss, and he does treat Trump as his boss. He works, according to his view, for the man in the Oval Office and not for all of us, for the people of the United States even though we're the ones who pay him. He basically stated that his boss had been cleared of collusion. On the contrary, the Mueller report says, we don't actually use the word collusion. That's not our frame of reference. It's not in the federal code. We can't quite prove he's guilty of conspiracy, and though, by the way, Mueller made it pretty clear that but for the obstruction of justice, they might have found enough evidence to convict him of conspiracy. I mean, for all we know, all of those pardons that he dangled in front of guys like Manafort were the things that prevented Manafort from making clear that it was Trump who told him to give all of the detailed polling data for the swing states to Kalimnik and through Kalimnik to the government of Russia. In any event, collusion, though not a crime, with a hostile foreign power to achieve the presidency is a paradigmatic impeachable offense, even though it occurs before your president. In fact, if you look at the history of what the framers said, one of the main examples they gave of something for which you have to have a power to impeach in the House and remove in the Senate was the situation in which a president would be helped by a hostile foreign power to get into office so that he would then be in some way beholden to that hostile foreign power rather than the people of the United States of America. That, they said, be unthinkable to have a president in that situation. But a lot that was unthinkable to them is sadly more than thinkable now uh, to us as we watch the saga of the Trump presidency unfold. And it's pretty clear that in that instance, even though it would not have been an abuse of power 
before he had power of an official kind, it nonetheless would be a basis for impeachment. What the president is doing now is an abuse of power. That is, he is essentially inviting Vladimir Putin to come on in. The water's nice here. Uh, we don't mind what you're doing. I mean, he might as well have invited uh, Vladimir Putin to continue screwing around with our election processes and actually hacking into the machinery and putting up fake news of all kinds. Um, another example of an obviously impeachable offense that would not be a crime would be, let's say, for the president to say, you know, I'm tired of all this presidenting stuff. I'm so busy here. My executive time is so full. I understand that things are nice over in Saudi Arabia, and there's a prince there that I know quite well. Um, I think I'm going to go over there and work with him on, you know, building a Trump Tower Riyadh. It would be very good for my family's wealth. I'm obviously violating the emoluments clauses right and left, and nobody has yet held me to account. Why don't I do that? Well, that would be an impeachable offense, though what the current Senate would do about convicting him is beyond my pay grade to, to predict. Um, but it would not be a crime. So crimes and impeachable offenses just overlap. Neil? Yeah, so, so this is really helpful, and, and maybe for the audience... We've been talking about the what question. What can you impeach for? Let's maybe just uh, ask the big meta questions so that everyone is on the same page. So why do we have impeachment, Larry? In your book, you talk about Ben Franklin and what he said. Well, Ben Franklin began with the notion that in Europe, there was often no peaceful way of getting rid of a tyrannical president. The method available was assassination. And we needed something a little bit less... A little less bloody than that. We had to have a peaceful way of dealing with things. You know, the famous question to Ben Franklin after the convention was, well, Mr. Franklin, what have you given us? And he said, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. Well, to keep a republic, you may need a way to get rid of a renegade president before the four-year term is up. If the president is renegade enough, it's not so clear that he will go peacefully into that good night at the end of four years, and sometimes in my nightmare. I wonder what would happen here if the president, who, if it looks like it's not going to be a landslide against him, and it's hard to imagine it would be, and maybe even if it would be, he's going to plant the seeds of doubt. I mean, he's attacked truth at every turn. He's going to say that there is a conspiracy against him, He's urged Barr to investigate that conspiracy. He treats the entire Mueller report, which occasionally, he says, exonerates him, which it doesn't, as part of that conspiracy. So if he looks like he's losing, he's going to say that it was because of the three million votes that were stolen, remember? And then what happens? You know, the civilian control of the military means that it would take a literal coup to drag his bones out of that Oval Office. Not obvious what would happen. So they needed an impeachment power in order to provide what they assumed would be a peaceful way of getting rid of a president, not because there was buyer's remorse, so we shouldn't have elected him. I mean, that is not a legitimate reason to get rid of the president. He shouldn't have won. 
therefore we should undo the election. And in fact, I mean, I often get tweets and emails saying, well, if we got rid of the president, wouldn't that get rid of everything he had done? Wouldn't it undo the travel ban? Wouldn't it undo the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh appointments? Wouldn't it be a real silver bullet? And the answer is no. I mean, we don't have in this country, although we have in lower co- in uh, in some other countries and in congressional elections, ways to redo an election. But we don't have any mechanism for saying that an election was stolen by fraud. What we can do, though, is get rid of the ugliest fruit of the poisonous tree, and that is the person who stole the election, the person who was illegitimately elected. So we have the process not to turn back the clock, not to have a redo, but not to have to wait until the end of four years to get rid of somebody who might be a mortal danger to the republic. Okay, so that's the why. We've talked about the what you can impeach for. Who could be impeached? You said civil officers. Tell everyone, what is that? Well, that's basically anybody who is an official of the United States government. There was some question whether senators and representatives are officials of the U.S. government, and that's never been settled. You'd think they are officials. They walk like officials. They smell like (laughs) officials. Um, But it's still unsettled. But we do know that cabinet members are officials of the U.S. government. Only one has ever been actually removed from office, and that was quite long ago. So so just hypothetically, if you had an attorney general who lied to Congress, could that person be impeached? Yes. Hypothetically, yes. And it wouldn't be hard to get a majority in the House of Representatives to impeach him. But then there is that little thing called the Senate trial. And for one thing, McConnell is very good at doing nothing. Would he have to hold a trial? I've argued that he would have to. My friend Bob Bauer, who was White House counsel for the president, the real president, Barack Obama, White House counsel for, for the president, um, has argued that the Senate actually wouldn't have to, and we've had a back and forth in lawfare over that. The difference between us comes down to whether you are one of these people who says something doesn't have to be done unless a court will make you do it. And from that point of view, he's right, and I've admitted it. No court would actually drag McConnell to the point of conducting a trial. John Roberts wouldn't be the one who would show up. It would be Mike Pence. Mike Pence would gavel the Senate to order. McConnell would say, we have no business to conduct. The House managers, led perhaps by Nancy Pelosi or by, by uh, you know, Jerry Nadler or my other student, Adam Schiff, a great, a great former student of mine, they would be right there with all of their briefs and their lawyers, and uh, McConnell would say, we, we shall now take up the bill to ban abortions throughout the United States. What would happen? I don't think that a court would order the Senate to conduct a trial, just as he didn't, didn't order the Senate to consider Merrick Garland for the seat that had been so long vacated after the death of Antonin Scalia, that wouldn't mean that what they're doing is constitutional. There are some things that are unconstitutional that no court will make you stop doing. The Constitution is not a fully, perfectly enforceable document. There are plenty of examples. 
and there are examples that the Supreme Court itself has pointed to. But if you believe that what's right under the Constitution goes beyond what somebody will drag you kicking and screaming into doing, then you would say it would be a breach of the constitutional duty of the Senate not to hold a trial. And right now, and I think this is an important takeaway in the book, right now, one of the main questions that is sort of searing the national conscience and certainly affecting everybody in the House of Representatives who's in the Democratic caucus is how can we avoid impeaching this total scofflaw who resists all of our subpoenas, who says he has no obligation to cooperate with the Congress, who does what Article 3 of the impeachment articles against Richard Nixon impeached or would have impeached him for doing if it had come to the floor of the House, namely manifesting utter contempt for Congress, a coordinate branch, it's hard to not impeach the guy. And yet there are people who say, well, even holding impeachment hearings is politically dangerous. If you keep taking the temperature of the public, only 37% want him impeached, although that may be because lots of people confuse the meaning of the word impeach. Maybe they mean only 37% want to remove him. But you can impeach somebody even if you know he's not going to be removed. I mean, the lessons of history are not what a lot of people seem to think. Take the three cases in our history in which presidents have been either impeached or forced to resign because of certain impeachment and conviction. There was Andrew Johnson. He was impeached on a rather silly ground because he violated something called the Tenure of Office Act, which was later held unconstitutional anyway. But there were good reasons that should have been given and that we explore in our book for impeaching the guy. Namely, he wanted to undo the results of the Civil War. He essentially was not just a slave owner, but believed in the restoration of the Old South. If it wasn't going to be through slavery as such, it was going to be through massive versions of Jim Crow, lynching African-Americans right and left, I mean, he was a bad dude, bad not just in the sense of policy, but in the sense of the fundamental constitutional meaning of our republic as it had become after the Union won the Civil War. But they went after him on the wrong ground, and the Senate, by one vote, acquitted him. And you would think, under the current view of things, well, if the person is acquitted, that makes the whole effort worthless. Not really. I mean, though he was acquitted, he was utterly defanged. He could no longer get his program through. He was rendered almost impotent. Take the case of a clearly unwarranted impeachment, the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Under the way that a lot of the talking heads would now lead you to believe, it must have really helped him a lot to be impeached on such stupid grounds, sort of lying about a sex act under oath. And it did make him temporarily quite popular. But in the next election, the Republicans swept everything. 
They won the presidency, they won the House, they won the Senate. They didn't pay a real price for impeaching Bill Clinton, even though it was a, a obviously partisan impeachment, not even any hearings, they just sort of did it. And right now, if there were impeachment hearings, and by the way, what's in a name? I mean, what's going on now with a, a demand that Mueller testify, with a demand that the former White House counsel testify, with demands that we got to the bottom of the Russian interference and the role that the president and his team had in it, those are impeachment hearings in all but name. And I understand the political reasons not to want to call them impeachment hearings. That might give people the misimpression that Nancy Pelosi or her caucus have already decided on articles of impeachment and have basically convicted the president without a trial, whereas at most they're trying to get to the truth. There are gradations of difference. Would it be better to call a spade a spade and say we are engaged in an impeachment proceeding? I'm not so sure. But what is clear is that if, or at least to me, and this is something where I'm very curious, Neil, whether you agree, if the House of Representatives says, look, we have our own duty here. No court will make us do it. We take an oath to the Constitution. Nothing could be more fundamental than to have someone in the Oval Office who was essentially found by an independent lawyer, by Robert Mueller, to have engaged in serious collusion with a hostile foreign power to become president. And you can't read volume one of the report without reaching that conclusion. And who was then found basically to have done all sorts of things, at least 12 of them, to undermine the investigation into what the Russians were up to and what role the Trump people had in it. Because of the DOJ policy, he couldn't quite indict the guy, but he came awfully close to saying, you, the House of Representatives, should now do your job. For all those reasons, what if the House said, look, as a matter of principle, that there is some bleep with, up with which we will not put? And this guy has crossed that line. We know that the Senate probably will not do anything, although you can never be sure. It was the public hearings in the Watergate case that moved the needle of public opinion dramatically. But let's assume the Senate doesn't do anything. At least he will stand as having been impeached by the House of Representatives. And that will be important in the court of history. That will be an important statement to the world that this is not acceptable. It will undo what would otherwise be, I think, a really scary precedent. Because if what this president has done is not a high crime and misdemeanor, although probably not quite treason, because of the narrow technical definition of treason, if what this president has done does not warrant impeachment and at least an attempt to put him on trial before the nation in the U.S. Senate, then nothing will. In the lesson... The lesson to future presidents will be, you can get away with murder. Although, in this case, in many ways, it's worse than an ordinary murder. So I, I think the counter-argument is, and it's, it's laid out in detail in your book, is a failed impeachment has a lot of risks. Mm -hmm. It risks empowering 
a president even further who can say, I've been totally cleared because the Senate couldn't convict me. And there's a two-thirds vote requirement in the Senate, so it's incredibly hard to convict. Um, And so I've thought about this for the last few months. And honestly, I think it's not a difficult question. I think if you're in the House of Representatives, you have a duty. Your duty is to the Constitution. And how can you let this stand? Um, You know, the president takes an oath to faithfully execute the laws of the United States. And so um, I wrote a piece two months ago with General Mike Hayden uh, basically saying this, that, you know, we send our members of Congress there for a reason. The most central thing they do is uphold our rule of law and our values. Um, and even if you think the Senate's not going to convict, you got to do your duty and you got to lay down that marker for, for history. Yeah, well, I, I very much agree with Neil. I'm not sure whether some of the questions that will be handed up from the audience will give us an opportunity to hear the opposing view. I've kind of put it forth myself with Joshua Matz in this book, namely, it's really dangerous. You can't take two bites at that apple, even though there'd be no double jeopardy. I mean, for example, if an impeachment in the House led either to no Senate trial or to a Senate trial that doesn't get the two-thirds vote, and if that does embolden and empower him, which I'm not sure it really would. I mean, after all, he's already saying, I've been exonerated. Mm-hmm. He's already capable of lying about it. The fact that the Senate didn't hold a trial or didn't get two-thirds would be no exoneration, but of course he'd claim it was, but he's already claiming exactly that. But given that, what happens if he gets reelected? I mean, it really could happen, folks. <laughs> not a pleasant thought for me. But it could happen. And you think about teaching law students and teaching them about the Constitution and what's happening to it with just two Trumpers on it. You know, it could be terrible. But suppose he's reelected, and then the hearings continue, because I don't think he's going to get a Republican House. And the public learns more and more what an all-but-technical violator of the treason laws he is that he's basically a Putin stooge in more ways than one, um, he could then be impeached again and maybe convicted in a new Senate. We can't rule that out. In any event, I think that although, as the book spells out, you shouldn't impeach lightly, you shouldn't impeach unless you would do it if the shoe were on the other foot, you shouldn't impeach just because you don't like the president, just because you think it was stupid to elect him, Nonetheless, even though you should be cautious, caution has to confront reality at some point. And the reality is much more dramatic now with the Mueller report and all of its detailed findings than it was before. So I'm with Neil on this. I think you have to do your job. So we're on the where question. Where does impeachment take place? We've talked about it starts in the House, two-thirds vote uh, to convict in the Senate. Um, But let me just understand the procedure in the House. Let's say the Senate is just not going to do anything. They're not going to buy the Larry Tribe constitutional theory. They're firmly in with Bauer. It's better. We're not going to have a trial. They say it. So if you're a member of the House of Representatives and you know that, can you still structure an impeachment proceeding to get at the truth? Can you still – do you have subpoena power? Can you call witnesses? You can do all the things that would have right. ordinarily happened on the Senate side in a trial, but now you got to do them in the House. I think that's right. You certainly can. The subpoena power is 
very much a power both of oversight and of impeachment hearings. And the House of Representatives, even if it can't get the attorney general to prosecute someone for contempt for violating a subpoena, has inherent contempt power of its own. In 18, uh, in, actually 1935, I think it was, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the House could enforce its own subpoenas, whether you can imagine in the current world uh, actually locking somebody up in the House jail. I think the, the jail they had back then was where the U.S. Supreme Court is now, so <laughs> probably they wouldn't use that. They wouldn't use that jail. Um, they have their own marshals. They can arrest Bill Barr. They can arrest... I mean, the scenarios are endless, but at least at least they can hold expansive hearings. They can, there'll certainly be some witnesses who, despite Donald Trump's view that anybody who's ever been in his orbit is still within his control and that he can invoke executive privilege even after it's been waived and that he can tell Deutsche Bank not to send people to testify and he can try to get courts to force people who have, over whom he has no control not to testify. Many of those things are bound to fail. We still have a court system. That is, I don't think even lower court judges appointed by Trump or the Supreme Court would say that Donald Trump has power to prevent the House of Representatives in conducting its oversight functions from getting testimony from banks and insurance companies to which Trump to, to which he has lied in order to get loans, they'll, they'll be there, and the testimony will be dramatic. And maybe, maybe Don McGahn will care what history says about him and will not say, yes, sir, even though he's no longer working for Donald Trump, and will actually testify. I mean, he was the key witness in the Mueller report, and it's all laid out there. The president told him to fire Mueller when he refused to do it. The president told him to lie and pretend he hadn't told him to fire Mueller. It's all there. And we now even have Lindsey Graham inviting Mueller to come and testify about the differences between the report and Barr's account of it. So all of that could go on. So it's interesting, Larry, until I just heard you talk, I've never put it together quite this way. But there's a sense in which the Republicans have overplayed their constitutional hand. You have Barr saying presidents can't be indicted, and even testifying this week, basically, like there's no point to investigating if you can't indict. So we can't trust the Justice Department to investigate this stuff. And on the Senate side, you have Mitch McConnell, who won't even bother giving Merrick Garland a hearing. So we kind of know that in an impeachment inquiry, he's going to sit on his hands. So I would think if you're in the House of Representatives, you think, well, now my lane is clear. The Justice Department's not going to do anything. The Senate's not going to do anything. So the only thing left for us to do is robustly investigate. That's, right. It puts the onus on us right. in the House. And if somebody says, no, wait a minute, what you can do is move on. People care about kitchen table issues. They care about health care. They care about the wage gap. They care about the mistreatment of women and LGBT people and, and people of color. They care about family separations at the border. They care about how you're being cheated in your taxes because you pay a much higher rate than, than the mega-rich. Focus just on that. Well, for one thing, as with many cliches, it's true that you can walk and chew gum at the same time. There's nothing that stops the candidates for the presidency from emphasizing not only how terrible 
and impeachable Trump is, but what they would plan to do if they were elected president. There's nothing that stops the House of Representatives from passing progressive laws that they know will die in the Senate, but that might be reenacted and then make it through a new Senate. There's nothing that stops all of that from going on. And in fact, if they show the utter lack of principle and spine and cojones that would be represented by saying, we're not going to even investigate, at some point the public will turn on them and say, what the hell are you there for? Mm -hmm. If not to do your job, which includes finding out not only what happened in the past. This is what I especially like about what Adam Schiff is emphasizing. He's saying the counterintelligence investigation is not covered by the Mueller report. All of the stuff about how people now in power, whether it's in power as the son-in-law of the president, Jared, uh, Jared Kushner, or in power as the president, how people now in power might be compromised, might have obligations that are held over them, whether it's by Erdogan in Turkey or by Putin in Russia or by the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, are we basically being run by foreign powers, which was the greatest fear of the framers, a fear embodied in the emoluments clauses as well as in their paradigmatic case of what the impeachment clauses were for. Remember, when we fought a revolution, we weren't so sure of where France would stand going forward. We weren't so sure that the Brits mightn't come back for another bite. The idea of someone in the Oval Office being beholden to potentially hostile foreign powers was the great fear of the framers. And it seems to me that that fear should inform how the House proceeds. Okay, so we're on the last of the who, what, where, uh, why, and now we're on when, the last one. And, um, and I guess my question for you on this is, we saw Attorney General Barr do something really remarkable in his testimony this week. He said, basically, well, we're only 18 months away from an election. Let the people decide in the election. Really you know, shocking because the whole idea of you can't indict a sitting president is it's up to Congress to exercise its impeachment powers, um, and you impeach first, and then you can indict. Um, that's the theoretical underpinning of these two office legal counsel opinions. Now he's saying don't impeach either because you have an election in 18 months. So what do you say about the timing inquiry, the when? Right. Um, you know, if, if someone were to say, yeah, I hear you, Larry, about doing your duty and so on, and what the heck are you there for? But there is, we're so close to an election, it's very clear Trump's trying to run out the clock and get even closer. Yeah. Well, that's one argument I've never actually found persuasive. I do think that the argument for doing it sooner is in part that a lot of people will argue well, you've waited so long, why not wait a little longer? But basically, that argument has no end. I mean, that means that the House should have started these intense investigations right after being seated this January. It's already moved more slowly than I wish. But the argument that we will be able to get rid of him in the next election is fallacious for several reasons. First, we might not get rid of him. Second, the very tendencies he's shown may allow him to steal the next election with the help of foreign powers. Third, the precedent that is set by saying we can wait for an election is a precedent that means the impeachment power has no independent significance. 
All of those reasons counsel against saying let's wait. Now, James Comey has basically argued in an earlier op-ed and have many others that nothing would be more satisfying, cathartic, more exemplary of what we are as a society than for him to be roundly and massively and overwhelmingly driven from office in a landslide. That would be nice. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't also get an impeachment on the record in advance. There is some tension. If somebody could make a strong empirical argument that it really is the case, that if he were impeached and then not removed by the Senate, he'd be less likely to lose in a landslide. But that's pretty speculative. We can't be sure of anything. As Yogi Berra once said, prediction is hard, especially the future. (laughs) So we don't know. But when all else fails, how about when all else fails, do the right thing? That's not a bad rule. Uh, let, let's talk for a moment about uh, can a sitting president be indicted? Mm-hmm. Um, you said you don't understand the rationales behind the Office of Legal Counsel opinions. Um, I, I guess there's two rationales. One is the idea that an indictment would distract the president, even if he's not forced to go to trial, um, would be unfair for him in the interim before he goes to trial. And maybe the best way of thinking about it is imagine it's 1863 and a South Carolina prosecutor indicts Abraham Lincoln. Um, Obviously with the goal of distracting him um, from prosecuting the the Civil War. So that's one rationale. And the other rationale is that in our Constitution under Article 2, the president has the full prosecution power to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So it's an impossibility to say, a president, a president could be indicted because it's literally the branch indicting itself. And if the president doesn't want to do that, he should be able to pull that back. Well, I'm tempted to say that in, in the vernacular, there are things people are told to do to, the, to themselves that are metaphysically impossible. LAUGHTER <laughs> I, I think, I think ap- apart from that, the, the real nature of the argument that I think is being made is not so much a linguistic one. How can the president, who's the head of the executive branch, allow the attorney general, who's the head of the law enforcement arm of the executive branch, go after the president? But I don't think that's a very persuasive argument, because since the beginning, even though it's not hardwired into the Constitution, we've had a constitutional tradition that the... De- Attorney General of the United States, an office that was created even before the Department of Justice was created, has an independent role. He has one foot in the executive branch because he is appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate and can be removed at will by the president. He serves at the president's pleasure. But he has another foot in the judicial branch. That is, he presents things to grand juries, which are a kind of quasi-judicial entity. He has, if he had a third foot, in the Constitution as a whole. His role is to see to it that justice is fairly administered. That's partly an executive function, but it's a function of importance to all three branches and to, the, and to we, the people of the United States. The real arguments, I think, are the ones that Neil mentioned earlier, the distraction argument 
and the argument that it would be sort of unfair. Well, first of all, I don't think it follows from the fact that the Department of Justice should be free to indict a sitting president, that the Attorney General of South Carolina should be allowed to. I think there are considerations of federalism that would lead me to say that you cannot expose a sitting president to the law enforcement processes of not only the 50 states, but of the thousands of counties and municipalities and cities around the country. That would be an unworkable system. So so just let me make clear. So if the Manhattan DA tries to indict Donald Trump... I think that would not be permissible. But if the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which already has before it a guilty plea by Michael Cohen in which Donald Trump is all but named as an unindicted co-conspirator were to decide to indict him and then put it to bar, you're going to fire me for doing that, then at least he would have stood up. One of the arguments for doing this stuff is that people have to stand up and be counted. Are they with the Constitution or not? But the other argument about distraction really has to do with making the indictment public. I'm not so sure that it would be okay to have the Southern District of New York indict Donald Trump, ask him to come to trial next Wednesday, really get in the way of his administering the country to the extent that he can claim to do it and play golf, (laughs) right? Get get in the way of his swing, right? Get in the way of that famous golf swing. Um, I'm not sure that, that I would go that far. But that's not a reason not to indict. It's a reason not to have an open indictment. There could be a sealed indictment, and if you're worried about fairness to the president, you could whisper in his ear, by the way, we've got your ass, buddy. (laughs) I mean, it seems to me that that could happen. And it seems to me that a sealed indictment, coupled with some understanding that to avoid going to trial immediately, the president would have to agree to a tolling of the statute of limitations and to waive his speedy trial arguments. All of that can be done. What worries me about that is Mike Pence. Not Pence in particular, but the way a president like Gerald Ford can, if coming in on the sort of outswing of of the golf club, can pardon the president. I mean, imagine if Trump, and this isn't unimaginable to me, if it looks like Trump is going to lose, or if he does lose on November 3rd, before the next inauguration, he has time to resign, make Trump the president, make, make Pence the president. Pence then has the pardon power. Even though I do believe that a president can't pardon himself, it would be pretty far step to say that, that a president can't pardon his predecessor. Now, if you could prove that it was part of a corrupt bargain. But good luck with that. That would be very hard to prove. That might be different. But it seems to me that there is the danger that this guy will never be held accountable, which is an additional reason to impeach him and at least have that on the historical record, even if despite the fact that he's theoretically indictable after he leaves, he might get a pardon that prevents that indictment. Do you think that he's only theoretically indictable? How do you read this Southern District filing with Michael Cohen, calling him individual number one mm-hmm. and an unindicted co-conspirator. Do you read that as basically the office saying, we're going to indict you the moment we can? I don't know. I don't know how to read their minds. But it certainly, it certainly cuts against the argument that the Justice Department policy 
is warranted because it spares the president the embarrassment of being called a criminal. I mean, the Southern District basically called him a criminal. Individual number one was engaged in a conspiracy with Michael Cohen and with that, that company that put out the National Enquirer uh, to violate the federal campaign finance laws in order to shut up two women and maybe more whose public statements on the eve of the election Trump reasonably feared might cost him some crucial votes in key swing states. It seems to me that if it's okay to name the president an unindicted co-conspirator, as individual one is, then it should be okay to actually take the next step and indict. And in something that I don't think many people have noticed, there's a line in Barr's latest statement, which is filled with misleading things about what Mueller did or didn't find. There's a line in there that, at least as I read it, says it would be consistent with our policy for the special counsel under the rules that Neil helped to write or mostly wrote himself, it would be permissible for the special counsel, despite the OLC memo, to express the conclusion that but for being an unindictable president, the president would be indicted, that he's guilty of indictable criminal offenses. And if even Barr basically says that, he, he said it probably to make Mueller look bad, saying, see... You guys think he's such a hero? He could, have, he could have actually done what he says he couldn't have done. And therefore, I will take the prerogative of clearing the president because given that Mueller could have said he's really a crook after all, even though he couldn't have indicted him, the fact that he didn't say that carries a negative implication. I don't think that's very logical, but I do think that the law as it now stands, even under the existing OLC policy, does permit Robert Mueller to say, maybe he could amend one page of the report to say, well, now that I know that I have that power, which I didn't know, <laughs> um, when I testify in response to Lindsey Graham's invitation, thank you, Lindsey, um, I'm going to say that I think it's obvious from my findings, I'm not revising my findings, that the president is guilty of numerous acts and a whole pattern of obstructing justice that... It may or may not be continuing now. I'm a pro. I'm not going to opine about things that my team did not literally investigate. Um, and by the way, there are possibilities, and there are statements in Volume 2 indicating that but for some of the obstruction that we are actually finding, we might have been able to prove conspiracy in volume one. Mm -hmm. So it's possible, though I wouldn't hold my breath, that Mueller's testimony later this month or at the latest next month could reveal a great deal about, uh, about the criminality of the sitting president. But, but let me connect the dots even further, Larry, because you're saying something really smart that I have not heard in the discourse. You're saying Barr, Barr told Mueller in his letter, you could have reached a conclusion as to whether he would be indicted. And now you're saying, well, Mueller can now go before Congress and, and reach that conclusion. But that bar conclusion is not just about Mueller, then. It's also about, for Southern example, District. the Southern District of New York. If you're Audrey Strauss, the acting head of the Southern District of New York, U.S. Attorney's Office, and you're reading what Barr said, 
you're basically being told, actually reach a conclusion as to whether a sitting president could be, whether, whether to indict on the facts a sitting president. Well, whether he would be indictable but for the policy shielding him from indictment. And in fact, the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York could make clear, in, perhaps in a superseding indictment, that the indictment to which Michael Cohen has pleaded guilty and which the court has approved and which referred to individual one's engagement in the conspiracy, though it didn't name him an unindicted co-conspirator, should be so understood. And basically the existing indictment, and it's not just an indictment, it's an indictment that a court was not free to accept without some independent investigation, although Barr apparently was free to say the president was exonerated without reading any of the underlying evidence and novel, a novel theory of... of if ever there was one, it seems to me that there's nothing, nothing to stop the Southern District from going a step further. Yeah. Um, by the way, I've been starting to work your questions in, which are just excellent. So, so thank you, with the exception of the last one, which is a follow-up. But for the others have been from the audience. And here's another one from the audience that you touched upon. But, but can Trump pardon himself or his family? You started to indicate mm-hmm. no, at least with respect to himself. Why? And then what about the family? Right. Well, there's a principle going back to Dr. Bonham's case, a famous case in the 17th century in England, that basically says, though there's some Latin phrase that I will mangle if I try to say it, no man, and they were thinking of men, can be a judge in his own case. And that principle is very deeply embedded in the laws of England and the United States. It's not expressed in the Constitution, but everyone understands that among other things, people are not supposed to judge themselves. And giving yourself a pardon would violate that core principle. It doesn't have to be enumerated in the Constitution, but I indicated earlier that there are a lot of principles that are embedded in the Constitution without being written out, like the principle that the vice president can't preside over his own impeachment trial in the Senate. Why? Because no one can be a judge in his own case. Even though reading the Constitution literally, not only does it not say the vice president can't preside, it suggests that he can, but we know better. In the same way, I think we know, and if we look back to the debates about the pardon power, there is confirmatory evidence that it was never intended to give a president the ability to clean his own slate. It was enough that the vice president could do that for him when when he left office. But again, I wouldn't put anything beyond this president. He could say, I, pardon me? I mean, he could. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, but I at least believe, and I wrote in an op-ed some time ago, why I believe that that is not permissible. By the way, the pardon power, though people call it absolute, is no more absolute than anything else. I mean, everyone seems to agree that if the president accepted a bribe, to pardon somebody, that would be impermissible. That pardon would be invalid. I'm now involved in litigating against the Arpaio pardon, the validity of which has not yet been fully settled. That is, in that case, it was a pardon not only from the contempt conviction that was issued by a federal judge, but a pardon from a kind of ongoing remedy. He was convicted of contempt for violating an injunction preventing him from abusing 
people at the border on the basis of their race and ethnicity. And he basically said, well, now that I've been pardoned, I'm free to keep doing that. And the use of the pardon power to prevent a court from enforcing constitutional rights going forward is not what the framers ever had in mind or what the idea of a pardon to wipe the slate clean is all about. So it's not at all clear that it's absolute. It's also clear that even if the pardon that the president issues to members of his family, if he eventually does, or the pardon he offered to Manafort implicitly, if not in so many words and certainly not in an email, even if those things violated no crime, as I've indicated before, it doesn't prevent them from being abuses of power. The powers that a president has as chief executive of the United States, as commander-in-chief, can be abused and if abused, can constitute high crimes and misdemeanors. The president is commander-in-chief. Does that mean that he could instruct the Defense Department to roll tanks down the street and sort of shoot at any house of somebody who we believe voted for Hillary Clinton? His powers as commander-in-chief don't encompass that. Could he suddenly say, I want you to I issue a blanket pardon for all white nationalists in the United States. You've given him ideas at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I I think Steve Miller will give him all of those ideas anyway. (laughs) No, there are are abuses of, of those powers. The most remarkable to me argument that Barr made was, well, of course, a president being the chief executive and being in charge of the executive branch, if he believes that an investigation into him is not fair or not warranted, well, of course, then it's not a corrupt thing for him to fire the investigator and stop the investigation. I mean, that doesn't literally say a president is the law, but that's what it comes down to. It's very much like Nixon saying, if the president does it, it isn't against the law. Yeah. So what cards can Congress play now um, in terms of the Mueller investigation, apart from impeachment? What, else, what, what do they got at their disposal? Well, they can hold these hearings that I think will make a big difference. The, nobody or very few people read 428 Powers, but if you haven't read the book, see the movie. And the movie will be on 24-7. It'll be a must-watch television, have hearings. That's one thing Congress can do. And it can have those hearings, and it can try to subpoena everybody and even have empty chairs occasionally when people defy the subpoena. It can also use its power of the purse. I mean, we do have a president who thinks he can usurp that. I'm involved in, I'm co-counsel for El Paso in a suit called El Paso v. Trump, where we are claiming that the fake declaration of a national emergency and the grabbing of money that Congress had refused to allocate to building his vanity wall on the southern border, that those are unconstitutional. Um, And so even though the president can try to seize the power of the purse, there are things that he may not really try to do for which he wants Congress's buy-in to fund various things. And and it takes both houses to appropriate money and to authorize its expenditure. And if the House says no to a number of his requests, he may know that, that that's a price he's got to pay unless he relents in his current stonewalling program. 
and then and that I've, can be very specifically targeted. So, for example, <clears throat> they could target Barr. They could say, "We're not funding your salary. We're not funding the office of the attorney general, and we're not going to fund any of the ten specific programs that we find totally objectionable: child separation, whatever." Right. No, that's right. They have quite a lot of power. And even though this so everything's changed after November on that sense, because yeah. the House has it takes two both houses to approve a budget. Exactly. I mean, it's not as though the ability of the Senate to do nothing uh, leaves the House powerless. There are things in which it takes two to tango. And without the House, the dance will not go on. And so the House can do a lot in that way. And then I mentioned earlier, it has the inherent contempt power. It might be able to arrest people. It might be able to jail them. A lot of those things... I mean, they're certainly going to take the political wind and ask whether it's going to make them look terrible if they do that. But those are among its powers. But the most powerful is the power to put on a really a really good show with witnesses who, I mean, you know, I think Don McGahn could be the, the John Dean of 2019, 2020. Um, <clears throat> is there anything more that Mueller could have done to maybe write more plainly, do something differently that would have eliminated the confusion that we've had over the last month? Well, he could have been perhaps a little less trusting of Barr. That is, he could have leaked. There was a letter that I still haven't read. I don't know if you've seen March it. March 25th letter. Right, nobody's... there's a March 25th letter to which the March 27th letter by Mueller complaining to Barr makes reference. But I don't know what the March 25th letter exactly said. I mean, there was a lot of back and forth, both over the phone and in writing between Barr and Mueller during the month of March, which may be quite revealing, but it may be that by the time it became or should have become clear to Mueller that Barr was not going to be straight up about this, that he was going to take his unsolicited job application and act on it, that he was really going to be attorney for Donald J. Trump, private individual, not attorney for the United States of America as the attorney general is supposed to be. Once that became clear, or should have been, to Mueller, he could have, you know, leaking is not always the most terrible thing. When, when the fate of the republic is up for grabs, I think that kind of whistleblowing is perfectly fine. He could have done that. He could perhaps have anticipated that nothing about the OLC policy prevents him from being more forthcoming that is his argument that it wouldn't be fair to say that this guy committed crimes when he doesn't have a forum to vindicate himself. He can't vindicate him the way he could, vindicate himself the way he could if we had the power to indict him. And then at the trial, he would have, you know, Giuliani or somebody who, somebody defend him. Um, but he's now defenseless. Well, that's not true. I mean, he's got the biggest bully pulpit on the in the solar system. He can defend himself as he does, whether you think it's a legally sound defense or not, and I think not, doesn't mean he's not defending himself. So I think Mueller could have said, nothing about that argument prevents me from finally putting the exclamation point at the end of all of the sentences in volume uh, two, at least, about obstruction. He has endeavored to obstruct justice in a way that absolutely fits the federal criminal statutes to a T and that would lead to his indictment but for the fact that he is president. Could have done that. I wish he had done that. 
So I, I wouldn't have thought I would ask you this question, but I got it so many times that I, I think I'm going to, which is please comment on Rod Rosenstein, friend or foe? Well, he's not my friend. <laughs> but that's not saying much. I haven't met the guy. Um, I think from the very beginning, when he went along with the, with the attempt to come up with a phony excuse for firing Comey, he was no friend of the Constitution or of the truth. He stayed there and sort of kept the ship afloat and may have prevented Whitaker from being as bad as Barr was. But basically, when he told the president in that now infamous memo, I'm going to land the ship, don't you worry. He was basically saying, don't fire me, let, him, let me leave gracefully once I've cleared you. And Barr is explicit that Rosenstein worked with him on the phony attempt to claim the president was exonerated. So I don't think Rosenstein is much of a friend. Okay. Um, do you think that the current Senate would vote to convict Richard Nixon, assuming they had all of the information from the Watergate hearings? What's changed? Well, what has changed is we don't have, we didn't have Fox News then. Mm-hmm. We didn't have social media platforms in which people, given the nature of confirmation bias, basically just had their pre-existing beliefs confirmed. We had some responsible adults in the Senate. You may not ever have been a Barry Goldwater fan. I wasn't, though I gather Hillary Clinton at one point was. Um, but he had the, the integrity and stature to be part of the team that went to Nixon and, and, and told him, look, the jig is up. You're doomed. We don't have people like that in the GOP at the moment. I mean, I, I'm always careful, or I try to be careful, not to just be purely partisan, but I, I just don't see them. I mean, maybe, you know, no. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I well, used to you're, think... You're Susan, talking uh, about the people who are currently elected officials, because there's a number of people, right. Bill Crystal, George Conway, yes, people like that. There are certainly conservative Republicans, some of whom have left the Republican Party, like Max Boot, um, others who are still nominally Republicans, but they don't have any clout with this president. They're not, they're sort of not part of the power structure, not part of his base. So I think basically, you know, there, there's a wonderful book by, by a philosopher named Saul Kripke called Naming and Necessity, in which he talks, he's a Wittgenstein scholar, and in which he talks about how there are some counterfactuals that just don't makes sense. There are some impossible as well as possible worlds. Like he says, for example, and this comes to mind because he used Nixon as an example, in one possible world, Nixon would have claimed the presidency against JFK. He would have contested what Mayor Daley did in Illinois, and we would not have had that famous thousand days of a JFK presidency. There's a possible world in which Nixon would have won that election. But there's no possible world in which Richard Nixon would have been a moose. Think about it. What would that that mean? There is also no possible world, I think, in which in 1974 we would have had as much deep political polarization, as much tunnel vision through social media, as profound a rejection of the whole idea of truth by something like 40% of the American people 
that's not the world we inhabited. It is the world we inhabit now. And so, you know, if you transport this social and cultural milieu and this political reality to what Nixon did, no, he wouldn't have resigned. He wouldn't have faced certain impeachment and removal. What he did was so much less grave and serious and criminal than what this president has done. I mean, the plumbers, that was bad. Cash under the table, that was bad. Telling various agencies to help cover up, that was bad. But he didn't work with a hostile foreign power to invade and undermine the sovereignty and the electoral integrity of the United States of America. I mean, that's really serious. So uh, I think this is our last question. Let me, um, almost the penumbra of these questions um, is, is asking something I think broader than what we've talked about, about impeachment. And it's teed up by your last comments about polarization and how different we are from 1974. Right. Um, you know, apart from impeachment, aren't you really saying that because of modern technology and polarization factors, that this document, this Constitution, just isn't working um, anymore. Um, it wasn't written at all with political parties in mind, let alone the hyper-partisan right. ones that we have now. And it was certainly written with the idea that the Electoral College would serve a filtering function, that without political parties there would be people of responsibility in the Electoral College who would not necessarily follow lemming-like over the cliff. And... You know, Alexander Hamilton, great though he was, foresaw an electoral college that would perform a function that this one isn't performing. Now, I sometimes, in, in my sort of less the glass is half full or the cup is half full moments, and in the moments when I count how much less than full it is, am of the view that, you know, this, this thing is just not guaranteed to keep, keep us together. But then I'm brought short by... Well, several things. First, young people and what they're doing across the country, the kids after the Parkland shooting and how inspiring they are, all of the women and others who've been elected to the new Congress, the uprising and political participation, the movement to get rid of the Electoral College, though it's very, very uphill to do it without a constitutional amendment and impossibly so with a constitutional amendment. All of those things give me some hope. And then I see something like um, what the Constitution means to me, this wonderful play by Heidi Schreck. Which, I saw it last night. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think if you haven't seen it, you should try, although scoring a ticket now is pretty hard because it's really the smash on Broadway. But it's a great play in which at the end there's a little debate about whether we have gotten, whether the Constitution is so disappointing that we should just shred it. And usually, though there's no formal method of judging that debate, somebody in the audience sort of judges, usually the little girl who argues for keeping the Constitution is declared the winner over Heidi Schreck, who argues we should shred it. She doesn't actually, and both Neil and I have talked to her after the play, I don't think she really means we should shred it. Because the idea of shredding it, because let's say money and power have too much influence over the way the world works now, kind of naive. Who do you think would determine what the new Constitution would be like? <laughs> you, you think the Koch brothers and, and uh, all those people would suddenly go away? 
I mean, God knows what we would have if we started over. This thing is imperfect, but we shouldn't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. I think we need to do the best we can with it. It hasn't totally failed us. We survived, though haven't really eliminated the underlying causes of the Civil War. We survived an attempt by Adolf Hitler to take over the world. I think we will get through this. At least I hope so for the sake of my grandchildren. I'm not going to see a world that I had hoped to see. It's just not going to happen because it'll take us a while. The damage he has already done to norms and institutions and to the idea of truth is so deep, so corrosive, that I don't think we're going to get rid of this problem just because he might leave. Even if he were to go quietly to that good night, the forces that put him there are not going to go away quickly and quietly. But we can see this as a teachable moment. If we survive this close encounter with tyranny, and I do think we will, but it's not for sure, we will have learned something. We will have learned things that enable us to make the system better, to attack gerrymandering, to improve the quality of K-12 education throughout the country so that people are less capable of, you know, less gullible, less able to be fooled by the next shyster who comes along. If you haven't read, um, what's the name of that book, Elizabeth? Oh, it's about how America has been fooled by fakes like like uh, P.T. Barnum throughout history. Kurt Anderson's book. Anyway. It, it, Kurt Anderson? Yeah, Fantasyland. Um, if you haven't read Fantasyland, you should. It's, the, the country has a long history of believing in snake oil salesmen. This isn't the first time, but, but we, I hope, we'll get past it. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.